The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Hi, I'm Zach Childs, and welcome to the True Tone Lounge. Today, our guest is Guthrie Trapp. How you doing, Zach? I'm doing great. Good. Guthrie has distinguished himself in a town full of great guitar players. He's played with big names like Garth Brooks and Dolly Parton and such, but then he's also played with virtuoso players like Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush. He has a new album coming out called Life After Dark, mm-hmm. and he's uh, you know works you know playing sessions. He's been touring with John Oates recently with an all-star band. Mm-hmm. He uh, he has a teaching that, that you do you know right. both online and Skype and and uh, and you have a, a show that you do uh, called Trapped Above Ground. Right, right. And uh, and we're just happy to have you on the show today. Thanks, man. I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, and we're not going to tell anybody what time it is, are we? On... No, no. <laughs> it's really ten o'clock at night. It's ten o'clock. It's it's late. It's late. So Guthrie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what drew you to music? Well, um, you know, I was very lucky growing up on the Gulf Coast. Uh, my mom and dad, who are not musicians, uh, but they're discerning music listeners and they're uh, aficionados of music. Uh, my dad's youngest brother, my uncle, I'm an only child, so I looked up to him like an older brother, and uh, I admired him, a super talented guy. He was one of those guys that was just super cool. Anything he did, he was good at sailing. And I mean, anything he did, he, he was the best at it. He was also a self-taught musician. So, um, you know, growing up around my uncle, playing a lot of different instruments, laying around, you know, listening to records uh, that he had and my mom and dad had. And, and going back to my folks, they listened to um, a ton of uh, bluegrass, folk music, new acoustic music, jazz, blues, uh, some rock and roll, but I wasn't raised on Led Zeppelin and the, and the Beatles. You know, no Top 40 radio. Um, we'd go to music festivals, and I'd go to these parties that we, our friends would have that all revolved around music. And uh, I never had a babysitter, you know. I don't, uh, maybe I remember one or once or twice that I ever had a babysitter, but my parents took me with them everywhere, uh, and a lot of this stuff revolved around music. So my theory is that if you're, if you're, you know, born into uh, uh, that kind of environment, then the music is getting into your blood, you know, before you even are able to pick up an instrument. So the sounds and the feels of of music are, are, are you're kind of like picking it up, you know, before you're even born, you know. And, uh, and so when you're exposed to that much of it, by the time you are old enough to pick up an instrument, you're kind of already, it's already in you, you know. And uh, I know a lot of the guys that I that I really love to listen to have kind of similar stories, you know. So that's how I got into it. That's the kind of that that's the abbreviated version, but yeah. but a very cool family that I come from, and um, I've just got great parents, and they had really good taste in music, you know. And my uncle was the conduit too to to having you know him being a self taught musician and having all these instruments laying around, and and when they would. 
when his band would uh, rehearse, a lot of times I'd be there, and when they'd take a break, I'd pick up a guitar and turn it up and start noodling around. The first instrument that I picked up was uh, the harmonica. I'd noodle around on the harmonica and could play a little blues harmonica, whatever, I was like eight years old, you know, seven or eight years old. And then uh, I'd play with my uncle and his buddies. And then, like I said, when they'd take a break, I'd pick up one of their guitars and start playing the same kind of blues licks, you know, of the pentatonic blues scale and stuff like that, that I didn't know what it was, but I was finding those notes on the guitar. And, and way before anybody told me that, like, hey man, you need to learn some chords, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Then you, you know, you progressed musically and you started playing in bands in the kind of the Floribama mm -hmm. area. And if people aren't familiar with that, that's an area that's, you know, kind of a, a, you know, touristy and somewhat of a party area. People go there to the beach. People go there to, to, to party and, and Very have, much so. have a good time. And so you were entertaining tourists and, and locals mm -hmm. and, and such. So what made you get to the point to where you wanted to move to Nashville? You know, when I was about 12, I joined this local band down there that was playing bluegrass. And we played every Wednesday night. We did some festivals and blah, blah, blah. And then I, that progressed into playing with some different people. And uh, it is a kind of a long story that I won't get into all those details. But um, I quit school. I quit school two weeks into the 10th grade and never went back because I was already playing and making money. And as your bills, kind of the first bills that you have to pay on your own, like maybe your car insurance and mm -hmm. stuff like that, I was able to pay. Uh, from playing and then that just kind of evolved into making a living playing music but um, playing on the Gulf Coast yeah we did we played a lot at the Floribama we played a lot at uh, Silville Quarter and a bunch of the different places in Pensacola Pensacola Beach uh, and and there was also this really cool thing at the Floribama which was kind of like a, a little bit like Lower Broadway where uh, they had songwriters and bands and stuff playing but they would start music at like 11 o'clock and go till three o'clock in the morning, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So there were a lot of opportunities. There were a lot play. of opportunities to go play. My my aunt was the uh, uh, accountant and and bookkeeper and everything for the Floribama for 35 years, so we knew the owner really well. He would let me come out there when I was 12 and 13 and sit in with these bands, and uh, and some of the guys would be so drunk by four o'clock in the afternoon that I'd go out there and they'd hand me their guitar and I'd finish their sets for them. Yeah, you know, because they've already had you know. 13 drinks. Right, because people have been buying them rounds. Well, yeah, and yeah. they're just, they were just alcoholics. I mean, yeah. this, you're talking about the last great roadhouse in America. I mean, this place was crazy. But an, but an, you know, unparalleled education for being able to grow up playing in clubs, you know? I mean, these guys taught me how to turn up. They taught me how to entertain uh, a, a, a crowd of people that were, were, you know, if you didn't, if you weren't any good, they're going to throw stuff at you, you mm -hmm. know? And so, uh, played a lot of gigs down there, seven nights a week and twice on Sunday. And then, um, you know, that just went on for years and years and years. And when I was about 21, 20 and 21, I kind of was like, man, I've got to find a way to get out of here. This is going to kill me. Because part of it is you had kind of peaked already at, as far as the as area. As far as you that area, I was done. Yeah. Yeah, we were, that with that area down there, the Gulf Coast, I was, I was done. There was a... A, a songwriters festival down there that they still have called the Frank Brown International Songwriters Festival. And all these songwriters would come down from Nashville and spend two or three weeks on the Gulf Coast playing at all these different venues. So back when it was really cool, before it got too fragmented and everything revolved around the main bar and, and, and at the Bama and then a couple little venues right around uh, Perdido Key, um, this was the late 90s. So... Um, 
these guys were like uh, Hank Cochran, Red Lane, Mickey Newberry, um, you know, uh, um, all these guys would come down there, these legends. And, and these and are very important songwriters. Very important songwriters. Uh, Mickey Newberry wrote American Trilogy for Elvis and like all these um, incredible songs. And at that point in his life, he was, um, he was on an oxygen tank and he was, uh, I remember uh, we went over to the beach house because we, they, you know, these guys would finish up playing. The festival would be over at like 2, 2.30 or 3 in the morning and then everybody would go to the beach house and play till 8 or 9 in the morning. You know, we'd watch the sun come up and everybody's passing the guitar around. I remember one night Mickey Newberry was sitting at the end of this table with about 13 or 14 people around this giant table. And, uh, and he was smoking a cigarette, drinking tequila out of a pint glass, and he's hooked up to an oxygen tank. And I was like, man, this is crazy shit. So <clears throat> around that time, you know, getting back to the, to the story, around, uh, you know, 2021, I was like, you know, this has got to, this has got to end. And with my local band, we were going up to Louisville and playing a bunch. We okay. had this connection at this club in Louisville, and we were coming up there and playing a bunch. And I met this girl up there, and I ended up moving up to Louisville for a year and hanging out with her. And then, uh, then that next year, I moved down to Nashville. Got a tiny apartment on Music Row. I lived for two years, then moved to 12 South for uh, eight years, then moved to Berry Hill for six years, and now I'm in East Nashville. I've been there for about 10 months. So. Yeah. I've been around town a little bit. So you so you moved to Nashville, mm -hmm. and you know every player, every successful player, I should say, has this moment where a, the door busts open. Mm -hmm. So what was your moment when you moved to Nashville? And of course, you're struggling. You don't you know really know anyone yet. But what was that moment that busted things open for you, and everything kind of started from there? Yeah. So, uh, um, so. The, this local music store in Pensacola, I would go there and I heard um, this music playing in there one day and it was Johnny Highland with Don Kelly and they had got a CD from being at the NAMM show. And so I heard this band and I was like, who is this? So he goes, man, if you ever get to Nashville, you gotta go check this band out at Roberts. And so when I came to town, the only thing I knew to do was go down and check this band out at Roberts. And so I would go down there and of course they played Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday night from six to 10 and Don's been down there, he's still down there. And, uh, and so I would go down there, meet the band, talk to Don. Uh, I'd go down there, it seemed like every night I was down there. I'd drink beer, stand in the doorway and listen to Johnny and watch you know, the band. And so I told Don, I said, I said, hey man, look, I said, uh, I just moved up here from the Gulf Coast. I had a band on the golf. We played a bunch of this similar kind of music, uh, a lot of blues and swing and country and stuff. And, and then I said, uh, look, if Johnny ever can't make this gig, I said, I'd love to come down and sub. You know, feel free to, you know, try me, you know. And so he never did. He never let me sit in. He never let me play with the band or anything like that. So one of these songwriters from the Gulf uh, that knew Don, we ran into each other on the sidewalk one night. I was talking to Don on the sidewalk, and this guy, Joe's son, walks up. And he goes, Don, he goes, you got to get this guy to sit in sometime. And so Don finally then, this was like after two or three months of going down there, Don goes, okay, man, next Sunday, come bring your guitar and we'll get you up to play like a couple tunes, you know? And I did, and then I sat in another couple times. Kenny Vaughn was down there one night or something, and I ended up playing with him and, and sitting in and everything. And then so Don goes, he goes, hey, man, Johnny's leaving this gig. He goes, if you want this gig, you can have it. It's yours. I said, of course, great, you know? So then I started playing with Don, and then about a year later, uh, I think Kenny and John Randall 
uh, who now we have a band together and all this stuff, but uh, I think they told Patty Loveless to come down there and check me out. So mm -hmm. she came down and I ended up, you know, auditioning with her with like one or two other guys and I ended up getting that gig and toured with her. And then when I wasn't playing with her, I'd come back to Nashville and play with Don. Yeah. And then, uh, and then from that, you know, I, I worked with Don for four years down there. The first four years I was here, I worked with him. And then, uh, but in the middle of that four years, I started working with Patty and then working with Jerry. So Jerry Douglas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was, uh, that was a good couple gigs that I had within the first four years of, of living here. So super lucky. So Don Kelly kind of has a reputation of kind of like being like the the country John Mayall, yeah, where he right. he gets these players <laughs> and he uh, you know and that are that are great and so yeah. what you know obviously you know you came up from the from the Gulf Coast and mm -hmm. you came up here and you started playing with Don. Yeah. So what did you learn from playing with Don? What did he teach you, or, or just playing in that that yeah that environment? Well, the cool thing about that that gig was the fact, the, the great thing about it and the, the, the awful thing about it was you're playing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, six to 10, you know, four hours a night, four days a week for four years, I did that gig. Yeah. So my chops were blazing down there because all, all those songs that he plays fast are way too fast. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but, you know, soloing and being the, only, being the only instrument in that band, it's just two guitars, bass, and drums. So I took all the fills, took 98% of all the solos. Don would play a little bit here and there, but not much. So I was filling and soloing on everything all night long. And this was like blues songs, ballads, country shuffles, train beats, uh, all kinds of different stuff. So for me, it was great because the band I had on the Gulf Coast, we were kind of similar. It was two guitars, bass, and drums. We were playing train beats, uh, swing and blues and jazz stuff. We were playing original music that was very roots-oriented, roots uh, a lot of blues, and then, uh, and then some country stuff. I mean, some train beat kind of country stuff. And so I was kind of already prepped in a way for, to play with Don. That's when I, when I went down there and heard him, I told Don, I was like, man, I can play this gig. I know mm -hmm. I can play this gig, you know? And I didn't tell him that, but, but I was kind of like, hey man, you know, I had a band on the, on the Gulf that was very similar to this, so I, I just knew it would be a good fit. And Don loved me, he, Don, and I'll, I will say this because he's told me this about 10 different times, but he said that I was his favorite guitar player in that band. And I'm gonna step out on a limb and say that because, and I know why. It's because Don loves the blues. Mm -hmm. And if he could play the blues for a living, that's what he would be doing. And I love the blues also. And so when I went down there to sit in with him, I didn't take a Telecaster. I brought some sort of hollow body. I think it might've been an old Guild or something. And I got up and played that guitar and I think he liked that. He liked the fact that I didn't bring a Tele and have a compressor turned all the way up or anything like that. I took a funky hollow body down there and played some blues songs. And I think that, I think he really liked that, you know? So, uh, but anyway, that, that gig was, was a really great springboard. And, and that gig is like, man, you know, Brent Mason, Johnny, JD, Red Volcar. I mean, there's a bunch of other guys that, that, that have played in that gig that are great guitar players too. Guys from in town, Porter, McClister, people that people don't, that really don't think about as much as those guys like Brent. But um, uh, the thing about that gig is uh, it kind of, you know, as soon as you are the guy on that stage down on Broadway, and this was more kind of, I think this is more, it was 
kind of um, more relevant back when I was doing it, when it was late, early 2000s. Because now Broadway has changed so much. There are so many people down there that it's just gotten kind of diluted. But down there, when I was back down there, there was still kind of a community of all the players kind of knew each other. And if you're playing with Don, you're, you're kind of like the new Billy the Kid on the street. You're the new yeah. gunslinger on the street. It immediately gives you this street cred, you know? Yeah. And, um, and for good reason, I guess. I mean, the guys that can play in that band are guys that have jobs to be able to play those tempos and, the, and all those different styles, right? So yeah. there's a little bit of uh, there's a little bit of truth to it, and then there's a little bit of hype to it, too. So, but, but, you know, why not? So from, uh, we've interviewed two other, you know, guys, uh, Brent Mason and J.D. Mm -hmm. Sima, that were in the Don Kelly band. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what they, and, did uh, you talk to them about it? Yes, I did. And, and uh, <laughs> one of the things that was interesting was... I they, like to always give Don credit, you yes. know? And a lot of guys that have been through that band you know, I think they don't, I like to go back and always give credit to people that were influential in your career. I mean, I, w I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a, a whole list of people I could name, yeah. you know? So. Funnily enough, JD felt like that you were kind of like the most perfect guitar player for that gig. Oh you man, thought, that's and, nice uh, of him to say that. And, uh, but but the, the question I was gonna ask you is, uh, with, with both of them, they both had some interesting stories about people that would come to watch them and, and that could be in, intimidating. Uh, like uh, Brent talked about George Benson coming and oh, seeing him God. play. And then uh, JD talked well, about Chet. Red, yeah, and Chet. And yeah. Reggie Young coming to, you know, sitting right up front in front of JD. So mm -hmm. so what was just an interesting night or, or, or some night that was just fun because, you oh, know, someone you was in, intimidating the crap out of you. Okay, I'll tell you exactly that. What I'll tell you exactly that, that moment. And those guys are right. There's been a ton of people that have come in through the years into that barroom. And, uh, uh, the, the one that I remember the most, and this was not long after I joined that band, uh, uh, Paul Franklin and Brent came in together and they both sat together and sat right in front of me at this table. And I just looked at Don and I was like, I was did like, they, you gotta be kidding me! Did man. they cross their arms and give you that kind of like? Pretty much. Me. <laughs> um, I mean, it might it might as well have been. Yeah. yeah. But but now, um, you know, it's funny to look back on those moments because now I, we just got done doing this John Oates tour where Paul was out with us for uh, two of those shows: L.A. at the Troubadour and then the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. And we were mm -hmm. traveling together and hanging and. Uh, he's on my record with Vince Gill playing the country shuffle that we did on there. And, right. and now we're buddies and we have, and of course we've got, I mean, I've got the utmost respect for him and he has probably, well, you know, he respects me as a player and a, and a, and a guy, you know, we've had some great conversations and, and, um, and all that kind of stuff. But so that was the night that I remember the most specifically, you know, Jerry Douglas coming in kind of rattled me a little bit too. You know, he came in with a couple of the current band members back then and, uh, and Jerry's a big guy too, man. He's an intimidating cat no matter what he's doing. And uh, so that rattled me a little bit. Patty a little bit too, but not so much because she's, she's not a player. Um, but, uh, but the Paul Franklin and Brent sitting together, man, that was like, I was yeah. like, oh my God. Man. Think, this is like, okay, here you go, yeah. you know. But what are you gonna do? I mean, you're gonna, you're, especially now, I don't get rattled around, you know, anybody really because you know, at this point, we're we have done all those things. We've we've had a lot of experience. We've met a lot of these people. A lot of them are our friends, 
and we do have mutual respect for each other. So, you know, at this point, we're all comfortable enough to go, hey, man, this is what I do. If you don't like it, that's fine. But we know enough people do to where we're comfortable with ourselves, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and we enjoy. I, I enjoy sitting down and playing the guitar at my house and being and just be trying to come up with something soulful to play, you know. And, and if you're happy doing that, then you shouldn't be worried about anybody else, you know. But back then, we're all freaked out, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the new album. It's called Life After Dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was very impressed with one, there's just great playing all over it. Thank you. Two, you know, your versatility is just amazing. The, uh, you know, the, the styles that you cover, you know, covering jazz and bluegrass, kind of new grass and mm -hmm. country and blues and, Thanks, you know, and gospel. Uh, you know, I, I just loved the, the diversity of it. And uh, the guest vocals are, are fantastic. Thanks. Songs, choice, tones, everything on it. Thank you, man. Great job. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, um, the, the, the thing about this one is the first record I did in 2012 is all instrumental. I'm not playing any acoustic guitar or mandolin on it at all. And um, it kind of just, you know, I don't really, I think I have a theory about music and it's like, I, th I think music should be taken very seriously, but it shouldn't be overthought, right? Because a lot of times it sounds like it, and we don't want to. We're bored hearing that that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I I go in if I have a couple ideas of songs that are fleshed out, great. If not, we'll we'll finish them in the studio, or or else uh, some of that stuff on the first record was just. I think we went in and cut a couple of those things, kind of kind of live. You know, it's all live, but we kind of did like a couple of those were just things that we came up with in the studio. So with the second record, I wanted to have some vocal guests on there. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't. The first record I did, I didn't want to have any get really have any guests on there because I wanted to I wanted to kind of stand alone as the first one out of the shoot, and then with this one I, I felt more comfortable having some guests on there. But I didn't want to have any guest guitar players mm -hmm. because I, I don't know. I, there's so many records out there with guitar players that have a bunch of guest guitar players on there, and I thought, why have a record, a guitar record with a bunch of guest guitar players? Why not have other instruments, right? Yeah. Unless it's just a marketing thing and you want to have 
a bunch of famous guitar players on there. So like Vince Gill agreed to be on the record, but he's not playing any guitar. It would have been fine and great, of course, if he did. I didn't ask him not to play the guitar. And I even said, I said, hey, Vince, would you be willing to play some guitar and sing this song? And, and he said, yeah, I'll do whatever you want on there, which, of course, I was blown away when I got that voicemail back. But, um, uh, but so he's singing on there. Paul Franklin's playing pedal steel. I'm playing all the electric guitars. And then uh, I've got Sam Bush is playing some mandolin. Jeff Coffin's playing uh, saxophone. Stuart Duncan's on there. A uh, bunch of great rhythm sections. Glenn Wharf, Michael Rhodes, um, Steve Mackey, Jerry Navarro playing bass. Uh, a couple different drummers, Greg Morrow, Fred Eltringham, Pete Abbott, um, and then a bunch of guest vocalists. Charlie Worsham's on there singing an old country song by Don Gibson. Uh, Jimmy Hall's doing some old Paul Butterfield songs that I grew mm -hmm. up listening to. And part of this record, too, is going back and paying homage to a lot of my influence as a kid, which, like I said, I, I really didn't get to dive in a whole lot to, into those on the first record. So... Um, Played some acoustic guitar, played some mandolin, uh, did a Hank Williams uh, song that uh, called I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry with Becca Bramlett. We did a really kind of vibey version of that. Uh, and my mom is a huge Hank Williams fan, so I did that <laughs> for her. I always dedicate these recordings to my mom and dad because without them I wouldn't be here first and foremost. And I wouldn't have the, uh, the musical upbringing that I had if it wasn't for them. So... Uh, and then, you know, just like I said, kind of paying tribute to all those influences and getting a chance to kind of, you know, uh, after doing the first one and thinking about doing the second one, that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, and I didn't, like I said, I didn't overthink it. I, I knew, you know, I think a lot of, you know, I'd kind of self-produced these records and, and it's just really, if you find good songs and you, and you know the guys to call for those songs, I, I know something good's going to happen in there, you know? So just get your friends together and, and, and get the right guys on the right songs and something great's going to happen, you know? Yeah. So I don't even worry about that part. It's like, I would never tell those guys what to play, you know? That's fantastic. And that's what you get out of it, yeah. you know? You just get some, you, you get, uh, you get, that's how the, like, exciting stuff in music happens to me, you know? Yeah. So. And uh, again, it's being it's being released, and then they can get it off. They can order it off your website. They can go to GuthrieTrap.com, and they can mm -hmm. either uh, they can either get the downloaded or the physical version of the CD of it. Yeah, absolutely. So it'll, yeah, it'll yeah. be all out, out on all the digital outlets, and then uh, of course, if you want to support um, me and my lifestyle, you can uh, you can always buy it on my website, which would be great. But but yeah. of course, you know, you can stream it if you want. Yeah, Buck Dancer's Choice. Yeah, uh, it seemed to kind of have three different movements, and it's it's kind of like you had the the kind of Chet-ish kind of you know mm -hmm. in the beginning, and then kind of got a little more kind of islandy, and then at the end got a, a touch of fusion on it. Is that all the Telecaster? Or? Yeah, that was uh, you know a lot of the guitar I played on that record. I don't even own that guitar anymore. I, I I bought this guitar. The guitar that I've been playing for 14 years, that Floyd Telly, I had to get it refretted. Mm -hmm. And when I did, it, something changed in that guitar, and I'm trying to resurrect it, but I kind of put it away. Actually, it's at Glazer's right now. It's been there for a while to try to get another refret. So I ended up playing this other Telly, and, uh, and I used a bunch of stuff that I never used. I mean, I, everybody knows I use blackface fenders 99% of the time. And I ended up using this Bogner Goldfinger on mm. that record. I mean, it just beat out almost everything else tone-wise. It's their kind of vintage uh, style amp, you know, and uh, 212 open back cabinet, little Bogner Goldfinger was killing it. Really nice reverb and stuff. So 
that song, um, I, I grew up playing that song with my uncle. I heard the Taj Mahal version first. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of, you know, it was kind of based on that. And then, um, you know, the melody is kind of a little finger picking thing. And then the way the rhythm developed was Steve and Pete, you know, it kind of has a little bit of an African uh, vibe to it. So, so that was kind of the rhythm section. Steve's doing those kind of slides on the bass, which is really cool. And then the solo section kind of goes into a little bit more of the, the Latin feel or whatever. And then uh, at the end, we, that kind of happened spontaneously where we just played those two chords, which I think is just C and F, or uh, could be F over G or something. But, uh, and then we just kind of that, we were kind of looking at each other and I was kind of like, please don't stop because this is cool. And we kept it rolling and then that's what happened. I got Jimmy, uh, once, we, uh, once I realized that that kind of outro was gonna go on for a little bit, I got Jimmy Wallace to come in and, and overdub that really nice uh, B3 stuff that he's mm -hmm. doing under there. So that's one of my favorite tracks on the song because it was kind of very spontaneous. Yeah. You know? uh, All Lonesome Me, mm -hmm. you know, a great old Don Gibson right, tune. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, has a, a great kind of retro sound and, and mm -hmm. you have the, the accordion on there. Jeff Taylor yeah. from the Time Jumpers, yes, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Sounds kind of like, was that a Gretsch or, or okay, what so, were you playing on there? So on that song, I was playing my telly, okay. but Charlie Worsham takes the first solo. Okay. And he's playing an acoustic guitar into an amp. Okay. With a, maybe might even be a sound hole pickup. Okay. I'm not exactly sure, don't quote me on that, but, uh, but he's, Charlie's taking the first solo, I'm taking the that second solo, which is not noted on the CD. Okay. It's not noted on the notes, but that's what's going on on that's, that one. That's why I kind of yeah. thought, it was, is, that, is that a Gretsch? But that makes right. sense being acoustic mm -hmm. with a sound hole pickup. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and that song's cool because I'll say something real quick about that. It's a fun song. Yeah. But if you listen to it, the bass, if you listen to the original, and I think Michael stayed pretty true to the original with his touch and feel, of course, but uh, it's got kind of a flip-flop bass line to where mm -hmm. when it goes to the five chord, it's almost playing a two, mm -hmm. five, or something like that. Listen to the bass line because it's very, it, it's really odd. Yeah. You don't notice it going by if you're not if you're not listening to it, but as soon as you listen to it, you're like, oh yeah, that's kind of a, it's a very unique. It might have been Bob Moore on that original track. Yeah. Um, Commodity kind of has a, almost an Eric Johnsony kind of kind of you know feel to it. I'm yeah. assuming that's telly like with the Nobles or something like that, or was that amp drive? Or? I think it was this guitar. Okay, the three thirty five. And yeah, it might have been a really light overdrive, and then if, and then if I go to a solo. I'll either hit another pedal to gain it up a little bit, or or, or, or I'll reach down with my foot and turn the yeah. gain up as yeah. I'm going. But I think that was this guitar, and yeah, that that, that song just came out of a little. Uh, it kind of came out of like just the messing around with a little chord melody, kind of like um, you know this. I don't know if you can hear that. So it's just like everything I play is out of the chord shape. So that was just something I came up with one day. I just thought, well, that's cool, and then I'll do another part. And if I come up with a, a part of something that I think's worthy of being a song, then I'll try to work out a B part, and then maybe a solo section, yeah. and then just kind of try to arrange uh, arrange something that's that would be interesting for me to listen to. Hopefully, you know. Yeah. That, uh, getting to the diversity of the, you know, just kind of the eclectic nature of the album, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, shag rug burn. Almost yeah. sounds like something that would have been like '60s organ trio kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and kind of is. I mean that that lick too. I'll, I'll just demonstrate it. It real quick. Uh, 
So that lick, it's almost like uh, it's almost like a three octave lick. So it's based around uh, the major third in A. Let's see it. So it's so you're doing right. So that lick, like I said, it's like those three octaves. So it's like so it's just based around that lick. song but so that you know just having a little lick like that can turn into a yeah. to a song like a like you said kind of a a little bit of a boogaloo yeah. groove right yeah. yeah which is very fun to solo over yeah so yeah it's a, it's a great <clears throat> groove who played organ on that that was charles treadway oh yes yeah yeah, yeah. from uh uh plays with jack pearson now and also um charles he and also uh, and wig walker yeah, yeah with charles and wig walker yeah mm -hmm. yeah so uh, then, probably one of my favorite songs on the album is the uh, is the gospel tune with uh, with Danny Flowers yeah. and the McCreary sisters mm -hmm. and uh, and great slide playing on oh, that. Oh, thanks, and man. just a great track. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, that was very fun. And again, I knew if we did that version of that song, I knew I just kind of went crazy, and I was like, man, let's get let's do go full gospel. So the, all four McCreary sisters. Danny Flowers and Becca singing on okay, there too, right. and they all kind of have their solo, you know, spots that they sing a verse. And then uh, I, I knew with that group that it would be really, really great. And then uh, and then having Fred Eltringham and um, Glenn Wharf and Kevin McKendry on keys, and then I'm playing my old Tysco slide, which I don't play. I'm not a slide guitar player by any means at all, but. Um, it's fun to pull out every once in a while. I'll, I'll, if it's in drop D or, or, or uh, you know, uh, not drop, but open D or open G, mm -hmm. I can get around on a little bit. But I'm not a slide guitar player, but I did play some slide on this record. It was very nice. Yeah, thanks. So the, uh, it was funny listening to, uh, you know, Got My Mojo working the old Muddy Waters tune. Yeah. That almost seemed like a uh, like it could have been a Don Kelly tune. Is that a song that you played with Don Kelly? Because you you kind of get into this telly, you know, kind of burning thing over over the changes. And... Yeah, uh, I didn't play that with Don, but we used to play that in my band on the Gulf Coast. Okay, and we just always did it. I mean, that even if you listen to the original, I mean, it, it that those worlds are crossing yeah. so closely there, you know, and uh, and it's a fun tune. I mean. Uh, why not chicken pick over it? You know, yeah. it kind of works. So, it, you know, in in a in a way, I don't want to say that. You know, by no means would I try to make that song country at all mm -hmm. because it's so badass the way it is. With Jimmy Hall singing, oh god, oh my I goodness. know, right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, and he's one of my favorite singers in the world, and is work tours with Jeff Beck too, mm -hmm. which which was very awesome. And uh, so Jimmy's one of my favorites, and he's from kind of my area too. He's from not too far down the road on the Gulf Coast, and and just really cool. But but yeah, I don't know what to say about the fact that I kind of am chicken picking over the top of that song. But it, it just seems like the right thing to do, you know. It, it works. <laughs> you know, it was funny. Uh, you know, interviewing Reggie Young mm -hmm. and talking about the the Memphis scene. Yeah, it was just the whole Delta blues and country music. Mm -hmm. It was such a marriage, especially there. Yeah. But it was this. It was shocking to me to find out that he was telling me the, 
the uh, the blacks were listening to country music. They listened to the Grand Ole Opry, and they yeah. listened to those things, and that was mixing with Delta Blues, and that's what created right. you know, that, yeah. that music. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think that's right on. I mean, the, the whole thing about the music that came out of the South, I think it is. I think those things are very related. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, like, hey, how do you look at... Uh, how bluegrass and country and blues and uh, all this stuff is related and it's a hard question to, to articulate the answer to but but they are they're very related I mean to me it's just uh, it's a wash of all that stuff and it, it those styles on the guitar kind of go seamlessly together I mean you could get into specifics of how it all works as far as like using the you know the the the, the blues scale in country music, it's just how you attack it. You know, if, if you're playing uh, a blues song, I'm probably gonna play single note and use my pick. And if I'm playing country, I'm probably gonna, you know, be doing like a hybrid style. But but it's just the way you attack the guitar. To me, that's what separates it. It's not, to, it's all the same to me. I, I even look at a lot of like, and we're talking like real country music. What I what I consider real country music, you know, music from the 50s, 60s, and uh, 70s, and even some of the 80s. I mean, Hank Jr. had some great hardcore country stuff that he recorded in the 80s and 90s. But um, uh, even some of that stuff is like, to me, it's it's f almost funky, you know, like mm -hmm. Jerry Reed and some of the Merle Haggard stuff. I mean, and Waylon, those Waylon halftime grooves, it's funky, man, you know? Yeah. And it's very bluesy. If you listen to all those um, um, uh, Merle Haggard records where uh, Ralph Mooney and those guys are playing, uh, I mean, it's all blues licks. It's blues licks, you know? And uh, unless it's something that has, uh, you know, that's in a very, you know, major, you know, sound, then, of course, you know, that's going to determine. It all, all this stuff, really, it all comes down to what song you're playing, mm -hmm. you know? So that's kind of the deal, but that's how I look at it. Also, on the album, there's uh, there's some kind of new grass acoustic things where mm -hmm. you're, you're playing with Stuart Duncan and right. Sam Bush, and those are, and then also you feature your mandolin playing. Mm -hmm. What kind of acoustic were you using on the record? Uh, you know, I I used quite a few different ones. I, the the one my favorite is my 1955 uh, Gibson J50, which is just a really really good sounding acoustic guitar. It records very well. Uh, let the strings get a little slightly dead, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, which works on Gibson's more, better than Martin's, but uh, that guitar just records really, really well. I used um, a little Collings uh, OM prototype that I have from them. I used that on, uh, on I think I used that on that Leaper's Fork tune. And then, uh, and then there was a rhythm part. I, I played uh, a Martin that I think John Randall had over there that was just kind of laying around. And I grabbed that and, and used for uh, a part. But yeah. yeah, I think those three.
This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, TrueTone.com.